Welcome to How Did We Get Here? A history of the UK's political parties. I'm Simon Rose and in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog, uh, we're going to be focusing today on the liberal side of our political system. And by liberal, I think we need to bring in the SDP and the Lib Dems, Mike. And liberals themselves go back quite a long way. We've talked about the Conservatives. They are the longest standing political party but the Liberal tradition goes back quite a long way as well. It does and I think it's important to say that the Liberal Party as it sort of constituted emerged although it was after the Conservative Party emerged in a kind of it evolved in a kind of similar way it wasn't um, conceived of as um, from a single person and mm. some of the, the later parties we're going to think about but it emerged in about 1859 from three groups in the House of Commons. Um, Whigs, Peelites, who were a faction of the Conservative Party mm. who'd split off. We talked about Robert Peel in the Conservative programme. And radicals coming together uh, to form the new Liberal Party. Now, there are distinct phases of liberalism among the Liberal Party, sort of 80 mm. or so year yes. dominance of, of politics before it faded into obscurity in the early 20th century. During the 19th century, under its greatest prime minister, um, William York Gladstone, it was far more focused on freedom of the individual, a sort of laissez-faire approach to people's lives. Yes. But as we get into the 20th century, we begin to see a turn in sort of the liberal credo with the sort of so-called new liberalism writing that's embodied by the last liberal prime minister, David Lloyd George, so the Liberal Party itself was, for most of the sort of high Victorian period, the great opposition force to conservatism. But they both had a similar view about a smaller state at the time. So that's what we would now think of as being classical, classical liberalism. Liber exactly. Because yeah. you get quite a lot of people in mostly the Conservative Party, I think, who would call themselves classical liberals. Yes. And it's important to say that actually the, the liberals... That, the time were the ones who were the sort of greatest proponents of free trade. Yes. So they're the ones who sort of you, you sort of fast forward to the end of the 20th century and you have Thatcherism, free market economics. That's a sort of precursor to it, as it were, that there's no tariffs or barriers to stuff. Whereas actually the Conservative, um, as at the time, uh, favoured a higher degree of protectionism. And if you think about the some of the Conservatives, one of the Liberals actually who had the greatest mm. impact on the early part of the 20th century was Joe Chamberlain, who was a, a great social reformer, but he left the Liberal Party, became an imperialist. So it was quite easy, as in the case that you see with Winston Churchill, who was at one point in time a Liberal politician, yes. to move between the parties. You know, Churchill and Joe Chamberlain demonstrated this. Uh, Joe Chamberlain went from being a... Um, a Liberal politician over to the Tories. So there wasn't a lot separating them. It's only when you get into the turn of the century and the Liberal governments of Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman and Asquith and Lloyd mm. George that you begin to see clear water. And actually, it's interesting because the Liberals then have a, a closer relationship with the fledgling Labour Party. But let's let's look at Gladstone first of all, because he's the sort of the titan of Victorian liberal politics here. He's a man who was Prime Minister no less than four times. Mm. He left office uh, at aged eighty four in the final decade of the nineteenth century. Um he of course had a very famous rivalry with Benjamin Disraeli at the time as well. Yes. And actually but it's important to stress that although Disraeli, um Dizzy as he was called <laughs> some people, had, you know, a considerable dynamicism. Gladstone was a man of clearly defined, in his views, almost Christian moral purpose. Yes. And a lot of the ideas that Disraeli pushed on 
came from him sparking off Gladstone. So even though even if Gladstone wasn't in government, a lot of the social reforms and voting reforms that Disraeli yes. pursued in government for the Conservatives came from Gladstone as well. Gladstone famously picked up causes that caused great deal of harm to his own party in, in the, the sort of the, the Brexit of its day was Irish Home Rule, yes. which Gladstone tried to champion unsuccessfully and indeed it ended up splitting the Liberal Party. It's one of these main reasons why people like Joe Chamberlain who was a great social reformer in his own right, yes. former mayor of Birmingham, drifted out of the party at the end of that decade. But the Liberal Party itself constituted itself in the latter half of the 19th century as the other dominant force of British politics. And like the Conservatives, it began to develop a kind of extra-parliamentary support network as part of that. The Conservatives had things like the Primrose League to support them. But the, the thing the Liberal Party has always struggled with, whereas the Conservative Party, I would argue, has grown up, as we talked about in the other programme, from a sort of more of a cultural kind of approach to politics, the Liberal Party has always had more of a principle bent to it as well, almost a conscience. And there's, there's a great quote from David Lloyd George, I think, that I think kind of speaks volumes about the successes and failures of liberalism in British politics. And Lloyd George said this, he said, if you want to succeed in politics, you must keep your conscience well under control. I'd argue actually that the Liberal Party and its various successes have been best when they have been acting as the conscience of British politics mm. throughout the time. And there's a very simple reason for this. We talked at the start about Gladstone's social reforms and how he pushed through um, other key measures later in his tenure. I mean, he, you know, the secret ballot was a good example of that. The extension of the vote of votes to all um, male householders mm. in 1885 was Gladstone again. But by the time you get to the the early 20th century and you have the Conservatives have been in power for a long period of time over under Robert Lord Salisbury and then Arthur Balfour. The Liberals have moved in a different direction and there is a difference between there's a vast difference between the kind of liberalism championed by Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman and Gladstone. And it's this. It's the fact that the state doesn't just have to free people um, so they can act. It has a responsibility to help people maintain a certain standard of life as well. Mm. And in 1905, 1906, a Liberal government comes to power that has the second biggest majority of any government of the left that's ever been given and so henry campbell bannerman is unusual in our politics and the fact that he is the first person to ever be formally called prime minister he's actually you know the, ti the titles oh, are, the that. titles okay, a term yes. of yeah the titles a term of abuse before that but he's actually the first one in government papers referred to it was as, a term of abuse it was a term of abuse that's where it comes from although and although during the 19th century it was an informal thing so Henry Campbell Bannerm is the first official Prime Minister. Mm. Everyone else before that, although they're nominally called that wrong, is the first Lord of the Treasury. So Gladstone, although he's Prime Minister de facto, he's actually first Lord of the Treasury. So Henry Campbell Bannerm is the UK's first proper Prime Minister. But he comes into office. He's also the only Prime Minister to ever die in Downing Street as well, because he only lasted three years. Mm. But in his government, you have a creed of liberal, particularly one man who we're going to talk about quite a lot in this programme, I suspect, who change the dynamic, change the political discourse, and for the first time really put some clear water between the Liberals and the Conservative Party, their great rivals. So when Bannerman's government sweeps into power in 1905-1906, they have a landslide majority. The Conservatives are reduced in seats. Arthur Balfour, the mm. Prime Minister, the nephew of Robert Lord Salisbury, is out of power. And you have in the government two, well, two or three great individuals there. You have Winston Churchill, who plays a prominent role in the history of the 20th century. You've also got Herbert Asquith, who's Prime Minister, known as the last of the Romans, famously a very intellectual man, very prominent nose. And then you've got David Lloyd George. And David Lloyd George is an absolutely 
fascinating figure. We've mentioned the quote just there about conscience. Lloyd George is somebody who embodies someone who had a great deal of social conscience, but also at times terrible, terrible personal morality as well. His own conscience clearly wasn't working. We're talking about a man here. When he comes into office in 1905, is made initially president of the Board of Trade, Mm. sets about his normal humdrum tasks with a great deal of energy. But he's also the first working class prime minister of this country. Asquith is from quite a you know yes. significant background, yes. so is Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman. David Lloyd George is, is a is a poor solicitor from Wales who never went to university. And but he's also a very gifted orator and somebody who believes keenly in a sense of fairness, which whereas liberals like Gladstone and uh, Lord Palmerston and Russell believed in freeing the individual, Lloyd George understood that the value of freedom has nothing unless you can hand guarantee a certain standard of living as well. And of course, we're talking at the turn of the 20th century, we're, we're still seeing Victorian levels of poverty yes. and deprivation. And Lloyd George is arguably the most dynamic and reforming Chancellor of the Exchequer this country has ever had. He's unusual in the fact that he, he became Prime Minister afterwards, and he's well known for different reasons. But the things he's really remembered for that made the greatest impact happened during his time at the Treasury. And we're talking in particular about the establishment of the foundation of the welfare state here. Mm. The creation of old age pensions, sick pay and national insurance to ensure that people had some sort of basic safety net for the first time. These ideas in their day were revolutionary. And presumably partly came because of his experience of them himself, whereas... One would argue almost every Prime Minister beforehand may well have read about them, yes, but would not actually experience them for themselves. Exactly. And, there were, and, there, and also, don't forget that the mentality before this was just sort of towards philanthropy for mm. well-meaning individuals. And until this point, there wasn't really a main political party in government who would champion the interests of social welfare. There was socialism in the background. That was seen as a sort of writing creed among mm. the workers. However, Lloyd George's who having come from a poor background he never forgets that and he never forgets the kind of means that people need in order to get on and if you think about the 1909 national insurance act for example as well yeah. he he goes about this in a seemingly brilliant way because he's arguably the 20th century's first great populist in the fact that he hits on a way of having to pay for it because a child has all sorts of different physical levers yeah. now it's of course it's very you know these days we take it as a given that you know, a tax rise to pay for the NHS is probably the most popular form of tax rise. You know, mm-hmm. it's the form of tax rise most people would want. But in 1909, Lloyd George introduces what what's called his People's Budget. Now, this in its day is political dynamite. It contains the foundations for a whole raft of measures that have never been seen before here. And even though we're talking about an old age pension of about five shillings a week, mm-hmm. it's still something that has never existed in this country before. Other countries at the time had it. But the United Kingdom, under Lloyd George's guidance on the Treasury, was really pressing ahead with this. Crucially, however, he also used it as an opportunity to pick out one of the key enemies of the government at the time. This is under Asquith's premiership mm. now. Asquith, a great prime minister in his own right, but Lloyd George really does the big social reforms here. They're all, Lord, Asquith does the legwork, but Lloyd George is the progenitor of the, of the really radical ideas. Lloyd George also manages to address, redress the balance in parliamentary democracy forever in this country from the house away from the house of lords firmly to the house of commons and he does it by laying down a marker in the people's budget 
because he says he's going to pay for it by taxing the estates of the overwhelmingly conservative hereditary landed aristocracy who still dominate the House of Lords. And don't forget, the conservative hereditary peers held sway right up until 1999 when um, Tony Blair removed most of them yes. through the, Parliament, no, the House of Lords Act. So what happens there is a clash between the democratically elected government of the day. There's still no mass democracy in this country at this point. But what you also get now is Lloyd George using populist language as a way of taking on the establishment. And this is something we've seen time and time again, even in the run-up to the EU referendum campaign that works very effectively. And Lloyd George understands this. He's actually also the first politician in this country to be subject to a, uh, a biopic. There is an, an unreleased silent film of his life that exists right. in an archive. And it's, well, it's, it's a great Hugh Edwards program on YouTube where it's shown in. It's, it's well worth watching. I watched it while re- researching for this program. But Lloyd George puts down a marker in 1909 to the establishment and the result is the Parliament Act, which firmly gives the House of Commons the authority for the first time to override the House of Lords. So already you have a man Hmm. in office who has managed to introduce the welfare state, bring about a rebalancing of parliamentary democracy, and he then goes on in the early years of the Second and the First World War to um, reform munitions production and he eventually becomes prime minister of a coalition government and with a, you know, and introduces mass suffrage for the first time. David Lloyd George is also the reason that we're talking about three parties in this programme as opposed to one. And yet the Liberal Party, as it was then, didn't last very much longer. They didn't. And the, the reason for this is that its, its origins, you know, we go into the First World War with Asquith as prime minister... Uh, the Liberals don't have a majority in the, in the, in the Commons, but they're re- working with um, Irish um, Home Rule Party at the time. They're still sympathetic mm-hmm. to that. They're flirting with the idea of passing women's suffrage, but Lloyd George wants to enfranchise all men at the same time. But then you end up coming into, for the first time, a period of the party splits in yes. during, the, um, <laughs> during the First World War. Asquith's kicked out, Lloyd George comes in. Lord George remains in government at the head of a coalition, but he's out in 1922. The Tories kick him out, and there is the, that's the last Liberal Prime Minister. The Liberal Party continues throughout the middle part of the 20th century. Lord George even briefly yes. leads it, a reunified Liberal Party. But they are they go from being a party of government to being an irrelevance around 1924 when the first Labour government's formed and Labour overtakes mm. them as the second party for the first time. And you have a situation for most of the 20th century where the Liberal Party is in the background they play a part in coalition governments throughout that period. Um, there are people like Archibald Sinclair who are big figures in terms of like in, 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 you know they, they, they're Secretary of State for Air in Churchill's government. Yes. But then you get to 1945 and Clement Davis is the Liberal leader and he chooses to keep the Lib Dems out of Churchill's cabinet then to keep the party alive. But they spend the next 80 years between 1922 and the end of the 20th century struggling to survive. The, the, I mean, I remember when I was younger, you'd often get a by-election in which the Liberals would suddenly do reasonably well. And Orpington is a great example. I was going to mention Orpington. And suddenly you think, well, they're going to come back. And there were interesting politicians. I think of Joe Grimmond, who was Grimmond. a titan of the House. Um, I mean, somebody you had to admire whether you agreed with his views or not. Um, Jeremy Thorpe. One thinks of as well as being a you know a fascinating politician. They didn't lack for dynamic leaders. This is the thing. The thing I think kept. So I mentioned mm-hmm. Clement Davis. He kept the Liberal Party alive. Joe Grimmond understood that 
the Liberal Party had a place in British politics by, you know, hoping for a realignment of the left. Ironically, though, the Liberal Party has always done quite well in conservative-leaning constituencies. And even up till 2015, you know, the Tories gained seats at the expense of the Liberal Democrats, as they were then. So Joe Grimmins plan has never quite worked. And even people like Jeremy Thorpe, when they hold the balance of power... They're still subject to failings of conscience that Jeremy thought mm. famously, obviously, you know, apparently tried to have his, his gay lover killed. And yes. it's, you know, th- there's a wonderful drama about that. But Thorpe at the time, they had these dynamic figures, but the Liberal Party never rose above sort of 10, 12 MPs. They had six at one point. Yes. And then you end up coming to the 80s. And this is where sort of 60 something years after Lloyd George's premiership ends the Liberal Party's fortunes start to change. And it happens because the third thing enters the equation, which is the Social Democrats from the Labour Party, the SDP. We're talking yes. about Roy Jenkins, Shirley so Williams. This is the gang of four, the as gang they were known four. at the time. You know, you could forget about splits in modern politics here. These were big beasts leaving the Labour government. Although someone rather unkindly said Bill Rogers didn't count, but I submitted he did. Yes. So, you have Which so- is quite extraordinary when we consider you know, how difficult it is to... to to leave a party, the fact that four such big beasts were able to set up their own party. I mean, it was a it big deal at the time. Yes, it was. The SDP polled f- over 50%. You know, they had Roy Jenkins, who was a titan mm. of British politics. They knew probably the, the greatest pro-European this, politician this country has ever produced. Sorry, Nick Clegg, but, you know. <laughs> so you have these, suddenly you have this new alignment. And David Steele's leading the Liberal Party in the 1980s. And he works out pact with Jenkins and then later David mm. Owen. The SDP doesn't last very long, unfortunately. It sort of, you know, has its high point in '83 when it's. Why? Why was it not more successful? Do you think, with hindsight? I think there are a couple of reasons why. Um, the first thing is the electoral system worked against them. They took within a few percentage points of Labour in uh, 1983, mm. but they only got a, a tenth of the seats. Yes. Um, in fighting as well, the SDP, you know, you had effectively you had three parties: the left, you had the Liberals, you had, you know, in working in a pact with the SDP, and then you also had the Labour Party. The Labour Party, by this point, had overtaken the Liberals over the, the sixty-year period to become the dominant party of the left. You also had, I think, the fact that you they couldn't really articulate a vision. D- David David Owen is a very talented politician, but he has a very he's a very clearly a social democrat, and this is. You know the thing about the the, sort of the SDP that you know Roy Jenkins was much more of sort of an old fashioned liberal in that sense, you know, much more libertarian in his Probably close to his great hero was Gladstone. That gives you an idea for that. So we go through the eighties, and the SDP gradually winds itself into obscurity until we get to nineteen eighty eight, and the Lib Dems, the, the SDP, so the Liberals and the SDP decide to get together to form a new party uh, with David Steele and. Um, David Owen doesn't join. He goes off into a huff into Parliament mm. and leads the rump of the SDP and into irrelevance, I'd say. David Owen, in my opinion, is one of the most overrated people, I think, in the last sort of 50 years of British politics, but undoubtedly a man of great ability, but someone I think is too highly of himself. So in 1988, the Liberal Democrats are born. And this mm. is the third iteration of this party yes, in the yes, 20th century, which is amazing if you think about it. The Liberal Party's great ability to survive that period meant that it could just get into this new being and over the period from 1989 through to 1997 under Paddy Ashdown's leadership they built the Lib Dems into a force of relevance again and from 1997 to 2015 the Liberal Democrats have a role to play in British politics they have a voice it does not materialize properly in 1997 there's talk of a great left realignment there's one of the great tensions with Mm. with the Liberal Democrats uh, the Liberal Party the SDP and Labour 
is they can never quite come together on things. The closest working we've seen on that side of politics has been when Paddy Ashdown was leader, uh, the late Lord Ashdown was leader, mm. and you there was a, a joint cabinet committee set up to discuss constitutional matters, and Roy Jenkins, the great pro-European, the great electoral reformer, came in to do a review of the voting system with Blair pledging to have a referendum on it. Never delivered, but still a fascinating what-if here. They then become the moral conscience of the nation under Charles Kennedy's leadership, particularly in opposition to the Iraq war, and criticising... There's a great quote from Charles Kennedy where he says, look, it's not about a crusade against terrorism, it's about resolve to tackle it. And Kennedy could speak compelling on that. You know, he was a great orator. Mm. Again, there's someone who's much missed in politics, I feel, as well. But time and again... The Liberal Democrats, you know, the trouble during, during this period is it always builds up the seeds of their own destruction because they have about a tenth of the seats in the Commons by this point, given the fact that the SDP in 19, the SDP alliance in about 1983 had about 20 seats between yes. them. It's incredible how far they've come. But once again, they are at risk of sinking into obscurity and it's because they lose control i think lose a sense of being the nation's conscience they've always suffered them from the 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 first past the post system they have but they've no way to game it i mean they know how to you know spread their support and if you look at for example you know when they the seats they held on to for example you mentioned joe grimman one of the seats they kept in 2015 was orkney and Cheltenham, which is joe grimman's seat Mm. but we've got to talk briefly about just the coalition government because this is the fascinating example here because i talked at the start of this program about how Lord George says you don't get ahead in politics hmm. by, you know, paying heed to your conscience. And actually, for Lord George's case, the reason he failed and the reason the Liberal Party split was because he operated on cold political pragmatism rather than listening to his conscience, I would say. They're the things that made him, he had to compromise too much. You yes. go forward nearly a century later and the Lib Dems were in government with the Conservatives again as a minority partner. Yes. Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg, Prime Minister David Cameron, a lot of people said the Lib Dems sold out in 2010 in going into coalition with the Conservatives. But if you looked at the parliamentary map, it was the only possible concoction for forming a government without, you know, a minority, a bunch of minority parties propping it up. And if you read into this time and again, you look at what Nick Clegg did in government. We talked about the sort of cabinet committee under hmm. Blair. A cabinet committee played an essential role in this. Clegg chaired the influential Home Affairs Cabinet Committee, which meant he could veto a lot of the Conservatives' more unpopular ideas. So the reason the EU referendum never raised its head in that particular mm. parliament. And that government worked well for five years. Now, you can argue whether or not it's a cynical advantage for the Liberal Democrats to have entered into that government, but they had an impact and they introduced things like the pupil premium. They managed to see the income tax threshold go up. And for the first time, they actually were in power. But they paid the price for that because the voters looked at, you know, took Lord George's lesson yes. about the conscience and thought, because the Liberal Party has essentially been this sort of weird concoction of free marketeers, social democrats, and people who've just gravitated towards the middle class professionals and students who want a protest vote, they've still lacked that clear identity whilst, you know, they've given the country a sort of moral direction, I would argue. Yes. Over the last century, they haven't really been able to call upon a traditional support base that Labour and the Conservatives have been able to in the same way over the same period of time. So when you get to 2015, you have a Liberal Democrat party that has been the silent partner in a coalition doing, you know, a fair degree of mitigation, I'd argue. That's one of the reasons I think Nick Clegg is an underappreciated political figure, mm. one driven very much by his own conscience, I would say, in the same yes. way that Lloyd George was at his best moments. But you come to 2015... And, of course, the Liberal Democrats suffer. They slide back into obscurity again. And they go down from 59 seats to eight. 
and they're hovering, you know, in single digits to the low double digits at this point until you get to the EU referendum. Now, we don't yet know what role they're going to have to play, but the history of the three parties we've talked about in the last half an hour or so mm. is this. The Conservative Party is the party in British politics that represents the interests of preserving the status quo, slow managing, managing change business. Labour is the party that Harold Wilson said was a moral crusade, presses, is pressing upwards. In between, though, there is always room for a party or parties to act as the conscience of a nation to say at some point, we should be doing this or we shouldn't be doing it. And that is the role that liberalism, the SDP and the Lib Dems has always played in British politics. Mike, thank you. Absolutely fascinating. And that is all for this episode of How Do We Get Here? A History of the UK's Political Parties. I'm Simon Rose and I've been talking to Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog.